0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to This is Comp, an officially recognized subsidiary of Discord and Rhyme of North America, where we go through various artists' compilations, artist by artist, song by song. I'm Mike DeFabio.
1: Rich Bennell.
2: And I'm Amanda Rogers.
0: And we are on Volume 1 of Nevermind the Mainstream, the best of MTV's 120 Minutes And we're going to be talking about tracks six through ten today.
1: Well, before we start, this is a new group here. Uh, So none of us really have much experience with MTV in 120 minutes, right? Yeah, I never really watched it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I've said before, we didn't usually have cable at home. And even if we did, do you know how much trouble I would have gotten into if I were up watching TV at midnight? (laughs) A lot.
1: (laughs) So it's a similar situation to Ben. Well, I never yeah. really watched MTV because I skew a little bit on the younger side of our hosts. And by the time I was into music and interested in watching music videos, MTV wasn't actually airing much of any. And that was always kind of the standard joke about them in the late 90s. Like,
0: Yeah, the stuff I wanted to see was on MTV 2. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, I remember when I was younger in the 80s cuz I'm just I'm just a little bit older than you guys. The MTV was still full of videos, but by the time we were teenagers, it was all everything good was on VH1.
1: Yeah, the real world was uh, was on there and uh, mm-hmm. my parents cable package had much music actually, which you would be happy oh, to yeah? know, Amanda. I uh, yeah. So I got to see like the tragically hip on there. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I saw a bit of 120 minutes because there was a really nice guy in the They Might Be Giants online fan community who would send out free bootleg VHS tapes that were just like packed full of videos and oh, interviews wow. and promos and live performances. Uh, and to my parents relief, no porn. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, this is the first time like dealing with people on the Internet ever. And as we know now, everyone on the, on the Internet is really nice. So um,
2: <laughs> you can take everyone at face value. Everyone is very sincere.
1: Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so a good chunk of those interviews were on 120 minutes, so I've seen this show insofar as it has intersected with They Might Be Giants. (laughs) Surprise. I also want to issue a correction. The host in the previous episode erroneously asserted that Fool's Gold" by the Stone Roses is a bad song, which is incorrect, and Discord and Ryan regrets the air. These hosts have been fired. (laughs) That's crazy talk. I knew you'd have my back on that one, Mike. And I'm not even a huge Stone Roses fan, but that song is great. Come on.
2: I like Fool's Gold, too. Yeah,
1: it's basically the basis for the entire career of Chick Chick Chick. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Anyway, let's get to these songs.
2: Yeah, they're all right.
0: <laughs> so we're going to start off with uh, The Church Under the Milky Way. This is track six.
1: Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty some sound of the breath fades with the light I think about The loveless fascination
0: Under the Milky Way tonight Lower the curtain
1: down, Memphis Lower the curtain down, all right I got no time Private consultation Under the Milky Way tonight Wish I knew what you were looking for Those backing vocals kind of remind me of, like, 10cc, like, I'm not in love or something. Yeah, super oh, yeah. lush.
2: Yeah, I can hear that. Except this song is good.
1: Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> Under the Milky Way by The Church was released in February 1988, and this is a rare song on this alternative comp that actually charted. It hit number 24 on the Hot 100. So, hailing from Sydney, The Church are one of several cult Australian post-punk bands I haven't properly become acquainted with because Midnight Oil took up all the space in my brain for that, and still do. Uh, <laughs> so, the band consisted of Steve Kilby on lead vocals and bass, Peter Peter Capes, Uh, Peter Copes, I'm not sure, I should have looked that up, on guitar, Richard Plug on drums, and Marty Wilson Piper on guitars. They started out in 1980 under the name Limousine. I got the heart of (laughs) (laughs) a Recording home demos in Kilby's home studio before they released a series of cult albums in the 80s, including 1982's The Blurred Crusade and 1983's Seance, which I just listened to on Spotify and I can confirm that it's pretty good. So... (laughs) Under the Milky Way, it comes from the band's 1988 album Starfish, which was recorded in the unfamiliar territory of Los Angeles, with session musicians Waddy Wachtel and Greg Ladani, who irritated Kilby when they suggested that he get vocal lessons, but he eventually obliged and agreed <laughs> that they were right. <laughs> um, the song is pretty like, hyper-articulate. Looking for... But anyway, Kilby co-wrote the song with then-girlfriend Corinne Janssen of the band Pink Champagne, and it almost didn't make the album catching people's attention as a demo really late in the recording process. And so uh, I want to talk about that bridge with the bagpipes. (laughs) So it was actually intended as a gag, uh, weirdly enough. So Kilby had left the space blank in the demo, and he was really annoyed when the producer suddenly wanted him to record a new song so late in the game, you know, on top of having him do vocal lessons. So
2: <laughs> <laughs> so demanding. The yeah. nerf.
1: Yeah, he seems like a cranky guy based on the interviews that I've read. Uh, but so he decided to fill it with something, quote, really silly. And so he put in an African bagpipe pa- sample, played backwards, and then layered with an Ebo guitar. And so he expected everyone to think it was silly, but everyone liked it. It became a single and the song was a huge hit. There you go. Yeah.
2: Well, when I read the all the titles of the songs on this part of the compilation, I thought I didn't know any of them. Um, but this is one of two that I did not know that I do. <laughs> as soon as it came on, I thought, oh, yeah, 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 this is right. I remember this. I like it a lot. This is a really good song. It's a little bit ahead of its time. To me, like just listening to it, I would have thought it came out in the early 90s when this kind of jangly sound got more popular. And I was surprised it was, you know, as early as 1988. Aside from that, though, I mean, I do really, really enjoy this song, but mostly it's not super remarkable. It's a pretty straightforward, just like well-written pop rock song, which is fine. You know, not everything has to set the world on fire. And then we get to the surprise weird-ass bagpipes. (laughs) It's just that, that extra little detail the song needed to take it from, hey, yeah, this is pretty good to, whoa, that's really cool. You know, it's just exactly weird enough to add this super interesting layer to the song without being so weird that it just turns everybody off.
0: Yeah. I'm I've never bothered to listen to any of the church's actual albums, but I've always liked Under the Milky Way, even though every time I hear it, I, I keep waiting for the part where it goes and then I think, Oh, oh no, yeah. <laughs> no, that's
1: that's that's not it. That's that's love
0: song by the cure.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that love song (laughs) is definitely very, very similar to this song. And it came out later. It did.
2: I didn't notice that similarity, but yeah, you're right.
1: (laughs) And it it sounds like the kind of song where they
0: came up with the title first and then tried to come up with a song that would match that. And I think they did that here. It's a very uh, nocturnal, stargazy kind of song. That's really easy to like, but uh, not Mm. so easy to like that you don't remember it. And... uh, Mm -hmm. The surprise bagpipes that show up in the middle are probably my favorite part of the song, which just goes to show that sometimes the most ridiculous idea you can think of is the best one.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I was on G chat with my wife once while she was in like a cafe procrastinating from work and stuff. And she was just listing the songs that were playing. And there was a bunch of awesome stuff like Under Pressure and uh, Behind the Wheel by Depeche Mode and Come Undone by Duran Duran, which I always approve of. And then she said, oh, now there's some boring slow song playing now. And after a Shazam, it turned out to be this song, uh, which surprised me at first. Then I realized that this song is kind of boring, (laughs) but that's kind of part of its charm.
0: It's it's Somehow? like a good
1: kind of boring. Yeah, yeah, bit. I still like it. There's a kind of gray directness to it uh, that I enjoy and I like the super hyper articulated chorus like I said earlier. yeah. Um, and it's certainly the best song on Starfish. I'll I'll I can tell you that. And it's in <laughs> Donnie Darko because of course it is. Oh yeah.
2: Oh yeah, it is
1: hmm. Yeah, it's a well, it, the song and the killing moon by Echo and the Bunnymen are both in it. And that kind of feels like putting the same song in twice to me. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely very much in the Echo and the Bunnymen tradition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, in terms of the style of this song, so I didn't watch 120 minutes, but I, I would say that a big percentage of this comp is I would say my kind of music. I'm really into just 80s alternative in general. And so I personally got into it because there was this short-lived Bay Area station in early 1999. Mike, you might know it. It was a, It was called 104.9 Music for the Rest of Us. Oh, I don't remember that. That was that must have been really short-lived. It might have just been a Silicon Valley thing. Uh, oh. So they played a lot of really great modern rock and synth pop and things that just shaped my taste in music in general. And um, yeah, th- they played this song a lot. And eventually it turned out that The Rest of Us wasn't a big enough demographic because they just disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> but... I don't know. It's cool to think about how, like, you know, a single great radio station, even for just a few months, can just, like, launch somebody's taste like that. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure.
2: I think Tom Petty's song, The Last DJ, is about that very idea.
1: Hmm. The last DJ who plays what he wants to play.
2: And says what he wants to say. Hey, hey, hey.
1: (laughs) (laughs) R.I.P. Indeed.
0: All right. Are we done hanging out under the Milky Way? Yeah. We might be. Okay. Well, let's... If the, if the Milky Way wasn't ethereal enough for you, then maybe you'll like this. This is the Cocteau Twins with Carolyn's Fingers, track 7.
2: Stop it, you're
1: ruining the song! I sound exactly like Liz Fraser.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Carolyn's Fingers comes from the fifth Cocteau Twins album, Bluebell Knoll, released in September 1988. It was released as a single in the U.S. and made it to number two on the Billboard Alternative chart, right behind Desire by U2. The Cocteau Twins formed in Grangemouth, Scotland in 1979 and took their name from an early version of a Simple Minds song. They were comprised of Robin Guthrie on guitar, Elizabeth Fraser on vocals, and Will Heggie on bass, who would later be replaced by Simon Raymond. That's right, no drummer! They used drum machines exclusively. And you wouldn't know it from this song, but the Cocteau Twins started out as kind of a spooky goth band. Their number one influence was Susie and the Banshees, and you can really hear it on their early material. Their first album, Garland's, is kind of a Halloween staple for me. Uh, soon after <laughs> that, though, uh, they started moving a- Sorry, It's a Cocteau what? Twins Halloween. It is. <laughs> if, that, if, if you haven't heard that album and you like the sound of that, you should hear that album. well Will do. Uh, But uh, soon after that, they started moving away from that sound uh, toward the more ethereal sound that would define not only the Cocteau Twins, but also their entire record label, 4AD. Uh, The bands most similar to the Cocteau Twins would probably be their label mates, This Mortal Coil, and Dead Can Dance. But really, if you want to hear something that sounds like the Cocteau Twins, you pretty much have to listen to the Cocteau Twins. It's impossible to replicate the combination of Robin Guthrie's waves of guitar and Liz Fraser's vocals that really do sound like they're from another world or something. So this song, is this the most beautiful song I've ever heard in my life? I don't think the answer really matters as much as the fact that the question was raised at all. Uh, This song is just absolutely gorgeous. Liz Fraser really shows off her vocal range in this one. And it was a common thing in Cocteau Twins songs for her to have her doing one stratospheric vocal up high in her soprano register and then another earthier alto vocal going on at the same time. But in this, in this song, she really goes to town. And uh, the thing about the Cocteau Twins is that as pretty as their music was, uh, they always retained just a little bit of an edge so that it never, it never went over the line and started sounding like music you'd hear at a spa or something. (laughs) <laughs> like if if you if you want to know what I mean, uh put this song on or any of their songs really and and turn it up real loud. And also, also I want to mention uh this song did have a video, and it's just if there's nothing really special about the video, it's just sort of a eighties a performance video like they made. But uh the, the th- cool thing about it that I like is that you know there's no drummer in the band, so where shots of a drummer would be, they have a reel to reel tape recorder playing alongside the band and there'll be like close-up shots of it as if it were the drummer
1: that's
2: really clever i love it yeah
1: so the Cocteau Twins, like back in the 2018 holiday episode, uh, Mike, you said that they covered Frosty the Snowman because the title sounded like a Cocteau Twins song, uh, yeah. and something kind of shattered in my mind because I'd never really thought of them as a group of people before, uh, <laughs> as opposed to like this like ether-like presence that sometimes came together into musical form or something, <laughs> yeah. like, well, because, I don't know, they were like one of the earlier bands I found out about before I really thought about like where music came from, and I would was just really surprised to find out that the band was like Liz Fraser and a couple of dudes because I pictured them being more like I don't know like the precogs and Minority Report or something like <laughs> l- like floating in a glowing tank and like generating be- beautiful music together. So I guess now I have to go back and rethink all of their music again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you had the right idea the first time around. Yeah, yeah. They're um, just
1: these sort of ethereal that's what they
0: spirit are. beings. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm only somewhat familiar with Bluebell Knoll. I really like this song, but the ones I the albums I know I knew before this, uh, Head Over Heels for sure. I love that yeah. one and Treasure. Around the time of Bluebell Knoll, they
0: they didn't they didn't get worse per se, but their their songs started to be like I'm going to be I'm going to be doing an episode at some point on Head Over Heels. And as much as I love Bluebell Knoll, it would be really hard to talk about what differentiates the songs from each other because it's all it's all kind of a piece.
1: Well, in addition to realizing that the songs were composed by actual people, I was also surprised just from them being on this comp to find out that they were popular. Like, this stuff was on the radio. This was around when they were, like, cresting in fame. Uh, yeah. That's really cool to me. Like, the, and this is really early dream pop. Like, they're known as, like, dream pop pioneers.
0: Yeah. that's. I mean, the, the, the genre I've, I've seen them listed as, I've seen them called dream pop. I've also seen them called ethereal wave. Uh, <laughs> and the definition of ethereal wave is
1: music that sounds like the Cocteau Twins, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. And music that can be attributed to an ether-like presence rather than actual human beings. Yeah.
2: There you go. Um. Well, as we have established on this podcast, I don't like anything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you like the midi blues.
2: I do, that's all. <laughs> I. You know, I almost like this, though. About 85% of it is really wonderful. The arrangement is fantastic. I love that guitar sound and whatever that kind of hissing, whooshing noise in the background is. It's just very cool and interesting. The problem is I, I'm so sorry. I feel bad. <laughs> I don't like the vocal uh, I just I can't get on board with it, and I see why it's appealing to other people, <laughs> 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 but it's it's the same reason I don't like kate Bush it's her voice is very, very high and thin, and I don't care for that sound. but on the other hand, Dolly Parton's voice is also very high and thin, and I love her, so I really just don't know what my problem is. <laughs>
1: Well, she doesn't always hit the super high register on every single Cocteau Twin song. If that's the if that's the sole issue,
2: well, I've heard a few other. I didn't really like their "Frosty the Snowman" either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've heard a few others. I couldn't really tell you what they were, uh, but just I don't know. Just nothing really made me want to keep digging, and what?
1: I don't know. The first place I actually became acquainted with Liz Fraser is on the Massive Attack song "Teardrop." Oh yeah, uh, me too. Yeah, which is also known as the House theme song, though they use an instrumental version for that. Right. Uh, I think her instrument, I think her performance there is like really nice and subdued. I, I really yeah. like it. Yeah, it's also very uncockto twins.
2: <laughs> I was also really surprised to find out that this was as big a hit as it was because I don't think I don't remember ever hearing it before, and None. honestly. I'm pretty sure the only reason I've heard of the Cocteau Twins at all is you guys.
0: <laughs> I, I hmm. do tend to push them pretty hard on people.
2: Yeah, well, I remember hearing their name a lot on Music Babble back in the day, probably from you, Mike. That's
0: that's probably, uh, yeah, I can, I can see that. I first heard of them <laughs>
1: when I was challenged at a party to list all of their albums in chronological order, and I hadn't heard of them before, and I felt <laughs> embarrassed. Because <laughs> those are the kinds of parties I went to. <laughs>
2: I was going to say, who are you hanging out with that makes you do that?
1: Music nerds.
2: Yeah, who were you hanging out that
0: that wasn't us?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know, I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) All right, if we're done with that song, then this one's for all you misanthropes out there. This is by Julian Cope, and he says, world, shut your mouth.
1: I'm just talking about Julian Cope. (laughs) We can dig it. (laughs) So World Shut Your Mouth was released September 1986 as the first single from Julian Cope's third album, St. Julian, and it's not and not his first album, 1984's World Shut Your Mouth. So this puts this song in the venerable tradition of title tracks that don't appear on the actual album with that title. Alongside Led Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy, Elvis Costello's Almost Blue and King Crimson's Starless. And what are some other ones? We were talking about this earlier.
0: Oh, Brain Solid Surgery. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there's a Moody Blues compilation called Voices in the Sky that doesn't include the song Voices in the Sky.
1: Yeah. It's a travesty.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very good song.
1: So I was familiar with the name Julian Cope, but not the person Julian Cope. And Wow. So, uh, like his fellow comp mate Robin Hitchcock, who we'll hear from later, uh, Julian Cope, he was heavily influenced by the music of Pink Floyd founder Sid Barrett, but unlike Robin Hitchcock, he also patterned himself on Barrett's lifestyle. Uh, and Uh-oh. then some, and then Uh-oh. some uh yeah, but it didn't it didn't completely like blow out his mind like Sid Barrett. He just turned into an endlessly fascinating human being instead.
2: I guess that's the other possibility
1: yeah uh so he was born in Wales and grew up in Staffordshire, England, and as a twenty fourteen guardian profile put it, he then quote moved to Liverpool to do teacher training, got obliterated on drugs, and became a pop star quote.
2: very common career path.
1: Mm-hmm. So he started out as the frontman for the Liverpool post-punk group The, the Teardrop Explodes, uh, and then retreated to the English countryside, subsiding on suppository-sized speed pills and Mars bars and amassing a gigantic toy car collection that took up a whole year of his life. So uh, he returned to society in 1984 and released two albums, uh, the aforementioned debut, World Shut Your Mouth, which again does not contain this song. Uh, <laughs> And 1985's Fried, whose cover features a naked Cope crouched on top of a slag heap wearing nothing but a large turtle shell. Why not? (laughs) Why not? Uh, So Cope's manager encouraged him to clean up, if temporarily, for his Island Records debut, uh, the aforementioned 1986's St. Julian. Uh, And so this song, which was on the album, was a minor chart hit, actually, reaching number 86 on the Hot 100 um, and number 2 on the mainstream rock tracks chart, whose history is boring even by my standards. (laughs) So, he even got a chance to perform it on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, though unfortunately it doesn't appear to be online. Uh, I looked for it. And in the decades since, he has released innumerable albums, three books of musicology, and two enormous coffee table books about archaeology. So, interesting guy. Uh, (laughs) I definitely wish Julian Cope's music were as interesting as his general existence, though, I have to say. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a time. Well, as far as this song is concerned, there's a there was a time when I fell really, really hard for this kind of like big, loud, aggressively unsubtle power pop. But now it always like, I don't know. It always feels too sugary for me unless it's executed at a really high level, which I would not. Uh, I would not consider this song that. Honestly, it's fun, yeah. but uh, a couple of comps in that vein actually that I think may even be worth covering are uh, Rhino's Poptopia series and Numero Group's Yellow Pills prefill. By the way.
2: I think we have the Yellow Pills one on the list somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to do it. That would be a fun one. I love that one.
1: hmm Yeah, it, it consists of a lot of songs that are like Roll Shut Your Mouth and Spirit but are better. <laughs> 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 so what do you all think?
0: Well, I, I agree with you. I, I wish I liked uh Julian Cope more than I do. You know, I I have tremendous respect for the guy as a musicologist. He he literally wrote the book on Krautrock. Rock which is krautrock sampler which i have not read because by the time i'd heard of it it was ridiculously out of print and it hasn't come back but also he he helped people rediscover scott walker and sid barrett back in the 80s and uh the album of the month section on his website uh, head heritage is just an absolute gold mine of cool noisy obscure psychedelic rock that's right up my alley but uh anytime i go to listen to his actual music I just sort of think yeah, it's fine. I mean, I I do like this song a lot though. It it sounds kind of like a nugget but lacquered mm-hmm. with a digital 80s sheen. Uh yeah. he, he actually does have a song on the the Children of Nuggets box set uh called Sunspots. And I like that one too. That one it's it sounds kind of like uh if if Sid Barrett's story hadn't ended so sadly and his career continued into the 80s. It's like it, it sounds like the sort of song he would be doing in the 80s. Yeah, that's that song's quirkier. This one's catchier.
1: Yeah, Children of Nuggets uh, is like four discs of this type of music if you want four discs of this type of music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go it's nuts. a lot of this type of music, but there's some real
0: real gems on there. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, this is okay. You know, I th- I think Next. it's solidly okay. <laughs> It's not as much fun as I think it wants to be, and honestly, it's only three and a half minutes, but it feels too long. That chorus yeah, is it goes on not forever. nearly interesting enough to be repeated as many times as it is.
1: Yeah. I think the ideal length of the song is like, I don't know, guided by voices length. Like, you know, just have the verse and the chorus and get out. Yeah. <laughs> Keep them wanting more. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. If it was only like maybe two minutes long, I probably would like it better.
1: All
0: right. We done with this one? World, shut your mouth! <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, everybody, everybody, hide your eight by ten glossies of the Pope, because track nine <laughs> <laughs> is Sinead O'Connor with Mandinka. Okay, oh, I
1: have I have like ten of those right here. I'm <laughs> glad you said that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> getting it moment (laughs) 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 the jangle apocalypse
2: Mandinka, released in 1987 was the third single from sinead o'connor's debut album the lion and the cobra it didn't chart in the u.s except on the dance club songs chart where it hit number 14 but it was a hit on college radio and did very well elsewhere in the world a debuted on 120 Minutes in January 1988, and according to Wikipedia, was in heavy rotation on MTV after that. But for whatever reason, didn't really do much on the Billboard charts. So, Sinead O'Connor. You have all heard of her. Uh, she was born in South Dublin in 1966, had a real rough life right from the get-go. Uh, her mother was very abusive. And as a teenager, Sinead was sent to live in a Magdalene asylum, which you will be familiar with if you've seen the movie The Magdalene Sisters. Uh, while she was there, one of the volunteers heard her singing and put Sinead in touch with her. Bro- the volunteers' brother, Paul Byrne, no relation to David as far as I can tell, who was the drummer for a band called Into Anua. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, she recorded a song with them, but she was only 15 at the time, and they felt like she was too young to join the band permanently. But that got her foot in the door, and she formed her own band, and then eventually was signed to Ensign Records as a solo artist. The Lion and the Cobra came out in 1987, was quite successful, mostly in Europe, but it got to number 36 in the U.S. But it wasn't until 1990 that she really broke through here with the album I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got and the single Nothing Compares to You with its extremely memorable video. I remember that, you know, just crystal clear. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately... Her popularity in the United States pretty much ended there. Uh, She was infamously the musical guest on Saturday Night Live on October 3rd, 1992, where she sang Bob Marley's song, War, uh, to protest the abuse of children by the Catholic Church. And to make her point extra clear, she held up a picture of Pope John Paul II and ripped it in half while singing the word evil. The problem here is that while things like the Magdalene Laundries and other systemic abuse by the church were common knowledge in Ireland, nobody in the United States really knew about that yet. This was several years before the first books on the subject were published in the US and it was a full decade before the Boston Globe did their story on the abusive priests and the general public found out what was going on. So without that knowledge, nobody really had any idea why she did that. And there were many, many people who were massively offended to the point where she was booed off the stage just a couple of weeks later at a Bob Dylan tribute concert, and her career just tanked in the U.S. That was that was cancel culture at its finest. <laughs> um, that is by no means the only controversy she's been involved in, but we don't have time to get into all of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I never really knew Sinead O'Connor as a musician growing up, I have to say. She was more like a constant punchline, like in sitcoms and like cartoons and general pop culture, but I remember yeah. seeing like... On Tiny Tune Adventures, she was portrayed by Shirley the Loon uh, at some point.
2: Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, She has kept on making music this whole time. She's had eight more albums come out since then. The most recent one was in 2014. Uh, but the only one I've heard is Faith and Courage, which came out in 2000 and is good. Uh, this is actually the second song on here that I already knew, but I have no idea how I knew it. Uh, I got to the chorus and I thought, oh yeah, this sounds familiar, but I don't know why or where from, and that is bugging me. But I really love this one. It's got just a terrific beat, although I do wish the drums were a little louder, but I always want the drums to be louder, so that's nothing (laughs) new. The vocal is just fantastic, especially in that don't know no shame part. I love how she flips into the upper register for just one word at a time and hits the note. It's really impressive. (laughs) Um, It just the whole song is super catchy and fun and interesting. And I read a quote. She said around the time it came out that in order to fully understand the song, you have to have read the novel Roots by Alex Haley, which I have done more than once. And I'm not sure that's true. (laughs) But I guess Sinead O'Connor, an Irish woman, really identifies with the Mandinka tribe of West Africa.
0: (laughs) Well, like uh, like Rich said, I, I seem to know a lot about Sinead O'Connor, the person, and very little of her actual music. Like, before listening to this song in preparation for this episode, I only knew Nothing Compares to You and her backing vocals on Peter Gabriel's Us. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I never had anything against her, really. I just never was interested in listening to her music. Maybe because her music was what people talked about the least. Yeah. Uh, and this song hasn't made me like an instant fan or anything, but I enjoy it. And uh it fits right in with the rest of these songs. It's got a simple but effective guitar riff, uh, a keening soprano vocal that she kind of wields like a weapon almost.
2: Yeah. And uh
0: <laughs> production that's uh just polished enough to sound, you know, nicely produced but not so much so that it sounds like, you know, hysteria.
1: It's it's really good use of glossy production. Ooh, diss. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure this is the actual band <laughs> performing here, uh, in this case.
2: It's not assembled from little bits and pieces of tape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is like doing all the backing vocals.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I was really surprised by this song based on just only knowing nothing compares to you. Like, uh, it's just such a strange combination of stuff. Like, I-, I wasn't really sure what to make of it at first, but overall, I really like it. Like... Uh, well, like, so the verses, they're in like the same big guitar girly pop vein as uh, the song Rush Hour by Jane Weedlin from the Go Go's, which is a song yeah. I really, really love. That is a um, good song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then when those chorusy guitars burst in and Sinead starts wailing, it kind of, uh, my wife pointed this out, it kind of sounds like a prototype for Dreams by the Cranberries. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So it's like two songs I love mashed together, which is cool. Yeah.
2: And I'm sure she must have influenced the Cranberries.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, Sinead O'Connor's music is good and should be paid more attention to.
1: Yeah, I definitely want to hear, like, the rest of this album, at least, like, based on this song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm more curious now. Sinead curious.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, coming up on the last song of this episode, uh, we save the noisiest for last. This is Sonic Youth with Cool Thing, and that's cool with a K.
1: Oh, Yeah! I used to be on a service called the Imagination Network, and my name was Kid Cool with a K. I was really <laughs> annoying. Some listener out there is saying, like, him.
2: <laughs> so that's what happened to him.
0: thing comes from sonic youth's 1990 major label debut goo and the single reached uh, number seven on the billboard modern rock chart which is just the alternative chart with a different name sonic youth formed in new york city in 1981 and took their name from the mc5's fred sonic smith and reggae toaster big youth they consisted of thurston moore and lee ronaldo on guitars and vocals Kim Gordon on bass and vocals, and after a few different drummers, they eventually settled on Steve Shelley.
2: Sorry, can I ask a question? Yes. What is a reggae toaster? Oh, he's he's uh,
0: he's like a, a prototypical rapper in in reggae music. He'll just kind of talk over the record. Oh, okay. Rhythmically, yeah. A toaster is <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sonic Youth came out of the no-wave scene in New York, and if you don't know what no-wave is, it's exactly what it sounds like. It was an unapologetically experimental and defiantly dissonant music that was a direct reaction to the commercial sounds of new wave that were everywhere at the time. Uh, Major names from the no-wave scene included James Chance and the Contortions, Lydia Lunch, Swans, and Glenn Branca in whose ensembles Lee Rinaldo had performed prior to joining Sonic Youth. So, Sonic Youth spent the majority of the 1980s testing the limits of what could be done with and to an electric guitar while still being considered some kind of rock music uh, by using strange alternate tunings and shoving screwdrivers and drumsticks under the strings. Their music was often not very catchy, but uh, (laughs) generally included... You could say
2: that. (laughs)
0: It it generally included walls of ringing guitar noise where other bands would prefer to put things like solos. Uh, But even at their most inaccessible, they were always really interesting. And even though they eventually became accessible enough to get onto a major label, their music never entirely lost its sense of danger. Like if their songs didn't always explode into peals of guitar noise anymore, there was still the threat that they might. And that was kind of enough. So cool thing is not one of my favorite Sonic Youth songs, but it's definitely not one of my least favorites either. Uh, when, when Sonic Youth wrote a bad song, they, they went whole hog. Uh, <laughs> a good example of that might be uh, My Friend Goo from the same album. Is that song from Gumby's perspective? <laughs> I wish it were.
1: <laughs> it would make it so much better. People talk uh, about Pokey a lot, but you never hear about Goo and Prickle. It's true
0: dinosaur chips this this is just a standard example of what a more accessible sonic youth song sounds like you know it's it's catchy sort of in spite of itself like it, and it's it's got the ringing guitar noise in there but it's been tamed a little so it's it sounds a little more like a hook but uh I, I like it a little more now that i know what it's about it's about uh this time when kim gordon interviewed ll cool j for spin and the two didn't exactly hit it off uh LO Cool J wanted to talk about how much he liked Bon Jovi and Andrew Dice Clay and how a guy has to have control over his woman. And Kim Gordon was trying to introduce him to the Stooges and hardcore punk bands like the Necros, and they didn't manage to find much common ground.
2: Who could have seen that coming?
0: (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Uh, So I, I can appreciate this song more knowing the backstory, but I also... I, I don't think the spoken word section with Chuck D was all that necessary at, from a musical standpoint. But also now that I've said that, I bet plenty of people out there want to scream at me that yes, yes, it was necessary and it was the most important part of the song and you will never understand, etc. And I, I didn't know that was Chuck D. <laughs> it, it's Chuck D standing in for LL. Yeah. Wow. But uh, yeah, fair enough. There's There is a reason they call me producer Mike and not gender politics mic or relevant social commentary mic
1: so <laughs> i call you that
2: yeah we call no, you that all the time no, did we do not tell not? you
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> well first off i don't approve of sonic eve stealing from peter frampton's cooler <laughs> but I, I warned you about the simpsons reference this time amanda
2: oh is that a simpsons <laughs> reference i didn't even know <laughs>
1: Yeah, they were at Hullabalooza. Uh, As for their music, I kind (laughs) of like the idea of Sonic Youth as this, like, kind of fuzzy cacophony where the songs are kind of, like, finding the signal in the noise, and, like, when I like them, that's what they're like. But there are only... From what I've listened to, there are only a couple of albums that really realize that potential for me. Um, Well, one of them is 2006's Rather Ripped, where they seem to, like, kind of accidentally stumble into writing and performing a catchy pop album. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, someone fooled them into doing it or something. Like, uh... But uh, as for Cool Thing, I mostly know it from Guitar Hero, which uh, that might be one of those things like uh, like saying like saying Pet Rock from the 70s that instantly dates you now. <laughs> um, but it means I must have heard it dozens of times, and it still isn't really terribly distinct in my mind, so make of that what you will. Um, I don't know. I'm still forming my general opinion on Sonic Youth. It's a, it's a long time forming.
0: Did you have to shove a screwdriver into your Guitar Hero
1: controller? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, I hmm, I want to like Sonic Youth, much like I want to like things like skydiving and calamari, but I am just not an adventurous person, and I don't like any of these things. <laughs> uh, this song is about as close as I've ever come to liking a Sonic Youth song, though. I mean, it it's somewhat cleaner than their other stuff that I've heard, which helps. And I like the guitar sound, but... In general, I just don't tend to enjoy music that is deliberately abrasive, and I hardly ever like spoken word bits in songs, so this is just really not my thing.
0: I think I want to like Sonic Youth is a pretty common opinion, probably. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah it's, I did read Kim Gordon's memoir, and it was really good. I enjoyed it a lot. And they have a song called Little Trouble Girl that oh, yeah. Kim Gordon did with Kim Deal, and that's that's a really nice song. I like that one, but- when you mentioned how when they did a bad song they just, you know, went all the way with it and I am genuinely wondering how you tell a bad Sonic Youth song from a good Sonic Youth song. They had a
0: tendency to get really sassy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh like another another example is uh this the song Master Dick which is a, a a bonus track on their the the CD version of their album Sister it's Thurston Moore trying to do a rap song.
2: Oh no! And he should
0: not try to do that. No. <laughs> wow. Like he doesn't try to rap. He just kind of yells in a sassy manner. It's it's not good. Hmm. It, it reminds me of the D.D. Ramone rap album.
2: Mm. Yeah, this is just <laughs> it's it's a it's a quadrant of the musical universe where I just really don't spend very much time, and I don't know my way around.
1: You just don't like bands with Sonic in the name. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it took me a second to connect those dots, but yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> it's, and for the record, I I don't really like skydiving or ca- calamari either. But uh, I don't know. I guess I guess a brace of music is just sort of like my one way, my, my my one way of like allowing myself to have these sort of extreme
1: adventurous experiences. There you go. Yeah.
2: I watch roller coaster videos on YouTube. That's how I do that.
1: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, as we established in the last episode, red hot chili peppers are skydiving music. Oh, and uh, by the way, uh, thank you, Ben Marlin, for ably taking that bullet for me. I was going mm. to be on the episode, but I just didn't want to talk about the damn Red Hot Chili Peppers. So Ben was there <laughs> instead, and he just like charged into the charged into them like a soldier <laughs> who would just with no fear. He was amazing. Thank you, Ben. I want to taking transcribe
2: Ben's description of the Red Hot Chili Peppers mm. and put it in Wikipedia. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my god, I hate the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay, yeah. okay, we're done here. We're done here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Roll credits. What do you call this record with all these songs?
1: This is come. Yeah, yeah. This is come. Yeah, yeah. This is.
0: Thanks for listening to This Is Comp, part of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. Our theme music is based on the song This Is Pop by XTC, originally composed by Andy Partridge. The opening theme is performed by The Hector Collectors, and you can buy their albums at thehectorcollectors.bandcamp.com. The closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley, and you can hear his music at Kenneth Crayley, that's K-R-A-Y-L-I-E.bandcamp.com, and his band Casinos at casinos.bandcamp.com. See you for the next 120 Minutes episode, and be ever wonderful.